Welcome back to the Perform, Prevent, Recover podcast, where we aim to bring you the latest evidence and research to enable you to perform at your best, prevent injury and recover well. The Perform, Prevent, Recover podcast is brought to you by Southern Suburbs Physiotherapy Centre. I'm Anthony Lance, physiotherapist, and I'm joined today by my business partner and SSPC co-founder Rob O'Donnell, who will be sharing the hosting duties with me today. Thanks for tuning in to episode 17, which is the start of the second season of our podcasting. We've really enjoyed the first season of the podcasting and we've got to interview some amazing people along the way and we've got a really awesome list of people and topics lined up for season 2021. For today, it's just the two of us though and we thought we'd talk to you about a rule called the 10% rule. And I'm sure for most of you listening, at some stage you would have heard of this rule. It might have been through your training, your mates, your coach, you might have read about it, or it could have even possibly come from us as physios when we're treating you. But as we find ourselves now again, unfortunately, in another period of of downtime, or, or maybe better termed lockdown, we thought a topic about getting back to fitness and progressing your loads was good. So we're going to try and dissect this 10% rule. We'll have a little bit of a look at the evidence, uh, how the rule works and what it actually means. And by the end of it, we want to come to a conclusion as to where we think it fits in the sporting world. But before getting into today's episode, if you're enjoying our podcast, please don't forget to hit the follow button on our home site and that will make sure you won't miss any of our season two episodes. And it would be great if you could leave any comments or feedback on our site too. But for now, let's get straight into episode 17. Welcome to the session, Rob. It's good to have you on board again. Yeah, thanks, Anthony, and welcome all. Now, before we get into it, you're only just telling me this morning you've just gone out and done a uh, 12 repeat of 400-metre track sessions. Did you put any load management principles into that coming off a few days of lockdown? Well, it's the first real track session I've done in a decade, I would think. And uh, certainly COVID has made me run more since last March, so... 11 months of conditioning and I finally felt like I was ready to do a track session. Okay, that's good. Well, as I said, here we are again in another COVID lockdown situation, unfortunately, hopefully nowhere near as long as the last one. And we actually uh, got together and spoke about this topic of of the risks and the dangers and the injuries in coming back after a a, a downtime, but time got away from us. But we find ourselves in a situation um, again, um, albeit a short period of time where training for some people uh, is going to be quite difficult for a short period of time with the restrictions that are on us. And and the biggest risk we saw last time, particularly with the the longer layoffs, uh, is where people try and pick up from where they left off and deconditioning is really a factor isn't it sure is and uh, people just don't realize how rapidly we decondition Um, and and I know as you said we talked about it after lockdown too we we were seeing a lot more in relation to the runners a lot more uh, stress fractures and tendinopathies uh, after people uh, had had deconditioned uh, with with just change of lifestyle, not necessarily stopping running, but but their lifestyle was differently uh, was different, and therefore uh, they their, their tissue changed. Um, and we we know that if you do nothing 
um, because of an injury over, a, say, a six-week period, it'll take you at least seven weeks to return to somewhere near the same level of training. Um, and we'll, we'll regularly see patients who have uh, worn a plaster cast for something or, or been in a boot for a while, and they're amazed at how much their calf muscle uh, disappears. And the same thing happens with uh, muscle capacity uh, just by training differently and, and deconditioning. Yeah, and I, I think when we think back to lockdown two, you know, it's quite amazing to think back and think that we at some stage had an hour of exercise maximum a day and we were only allowed 5Ks outside our, our own house and no gyms and no pools and tracks and trails we weren't allowed to go to and we're basically home for you know about 112 days where training was modified uh, to a fair degree so you talk about the deconditioning and the tissue changes was there any sort of common injury type that you saw coming in post lockdown too? Sure, in, in particular in relation to, to bone and tendon, which just don't respond to load change as well as some other body tissues. We saw a lot of postural-based um, problems from people sitting a lot uh, with work from home or as I eventually decided, it was, it was really that they were living at work rather than working from home. Um, but in reality, it's more that... Uh, um, Patients or, or their tissues just don't respond to deloading. So we um, people need to talk much more about how we reload tissue uh, to try and avoid these injuries rather than uh, uh, the deloading fact. Yeah, and look, I, look, I mean, one of my classic examples from that time too was but we're going to talk a lot about uh, returning to activity level after a layoff, but my most memorable case from lockdown two was actually injuries during lockdown two and that was a a young girl who had nothing to do but run and ended up um, coming off no running base and running six days a week for six to eight k's a day and ran herself into a tibial or shin stress fracture which cost her quite a few months of rehab so yeah it's not just the the deloading and then the reloading but it's also putting unusual load on our body tissues that can um, cause injury as well so yeah that was that was quite an amazing one for me so let's look at like COVID has presented us with a really unique set of circumstances if we look at your running population in particular because that's that's the the major group of athletes that you treat when do you worry what sort of deloading leaves a runner at risk Oh, there can be many things. Uh, injur- injuries is the obvious one um, because it can cost you complete time off sports. So I always say and you don't have to just run to um, maintain conditioning or some load on our tissues. So we, we always try and get people doing something rather than nothing uh, when they're injured. But even, you know, holidays, uh, we, we tend to peak for certain seasons and then have um, downtime and you're just trying to keep people maintaining some base level of fitness during um, those downtimes. Uh, you know, even when they they might get sick, hopefully no one's got COVID, but uh, any sort of illness, uh, if we can get them doing something and it might just be, you know, standing on a step and, and jumping off uh, absorbing that impact for their tendons or uh, some some double leg jumps again for tendon and bone health 
Um, so there's many times uh, that the runners have uh, breaks uh, where they are at uh, risk of deconditioning and we need to uh, consider all that and, and if, if avoidable, you know, just don't do nothing. Yeah, look, that's that's good and, and I think too, you know, we need to look at not only the length of downtime but COVID again, and look, it's not it's not so unusual uh, in the, the people that we see that it's also the length of time that they have to actually get back to where they want to be. And, and if we take the AFL, which is probably still uh, in our memories, is that they had such an interrupted season and they ended up having, after their modified training, about a three-week window to get back to full training, um, unrestricted and trying to get back to their level of, of sport. And, and we did see a lot of soft tissue injuries early on in the season when they came back in what was effectively round two. So I think also, as well as the time that people spend deloading for whatever reason it is, we've also got to take into account how much time people have to get back to their their required level of activity. But that leads us into the main topic that we do want to discuss, and and that's um, how we actually reload or how we get fitter after these time periods and there's a rule out there that as we said in the intro that most sports people and and certainly us as physios we hear about it and can speak about it a fair bit and that's the 10% rule. Do you want to start by giving us an explanation of what the 10% rule is Rob? Sure well just just to go back to your comments there it's obviously and this leads into the 10% rule but the the speed of the build-up and that um, varies for everyone dependent on their sport Uh, with that example you just gave as far as football um, but the speed of the build-up, the quicker you try to build up, obviously the greater the risk of injury. So the slower we can progress someone, um, the the less risk we have. But it's it's not always um, appropriate for the situation. So the the 10% rule is basically most runners understand uh, that they've got to build up gradually, and it's just a rule that we've always used and we'll, we'll go into it in a minute as far as the lack of science behind it but that um, if you increase your training volume by 10 percent from any given week to the next week that you're in a safe zone um, and that that uh, can vary tremendously which we'll we'll go into but we know that um, runners as a general rule uh, will uh, suffer from overuse injuries and it's trying to, to establish a training model that minimizes that risk um, but you know about 60 percent of running injuries occur because of training errors certainly a lot I see a lot more um, training error related injuries than we do biomechanic related injuries uh, so it's it's a rule to try and uh, keep us safe from those overload injuries. So let's start with the facts around that and uh, I'll ask you a question. So especially we're in such an evidence-based world now, uh, I just mentioned there is there strong evidence around the 10% rule? Yeah, well, that's a good question. I think we're both on board with the fact that, um, yes, we are in an evidence-based world at the moment, but... uh, 
a lack of evidence doesn't necessarily mean we've got to throw the baby out with the bathwater, as they say. But look, in terms of the 10% rule, I had a good look. And as you said, there's there's really not a lot that's been done in regards to the 10% rule. And look, there was one study which came up, which is probably uh, a reasonably classic one. And, and it took some novice runners and found that they were most likely to get injured if they had a greater than 30% increase in their weekly training load. So obviously that's a fair bit more than the 10%. But this study actually found that there was less likely uh, to get an injury with smaller increases in training load. And so they reported smaller as being around uh, 20 and, and, and just above 20%. So look, you know, these sort of studies present us with a few issues. I think the first thing is people will read a conclusion and, and take from the conclusion something has been absolute evidence but it's not that simple so a study like this you know we'd say look it's only one study there wasn't a heap of people in it um, it was done on novice runners and and so you've got to say are novice runners you know more likely to get injured than experienced runners anyway so it, it's hard to take a conclusion out of one study and apply it to to everybody and certainly if we just took this study then we'd be saying hey a 20 percent increase is is actually quite safe so look you know overall there's not a lot of evidence and what is there certainly isn't conclusive on the 10 percent rule why do you think it's so popular then yeah well look i think i think with 10 percent it's simple it's easy to understand it doesn't take much explanation um, and I think two people like it because you can you can apply it to most parts of your training be it your running distance your running speed your swimming distance your your weight lifted like 10 percent's pretty easy and you only need to really factor in this one variable so it it does make it quite simple and and I think one of the big things is is that it just seems to make sense but as we go into it might make sense but it, it, but it's not that simple so look it's really I don't know it's taken a real popular run um, as a lot of things have but now that we're into more of the evidence and the research we're sort of finding that maybe it's not quite as simple as we think it is. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's the one variable that you talk about um, that I, I see as a, a major flaw in it um, in that it just looks, the 10% rule is all about volume of training. So if you've done uh, 3K uh, in a run this week or, or 30K in total, then you're only looking at 33K next week but it doesn't um consider anything about you know what sort of sessions so this morning you know as we talked about i did 12 400s now that's obviously a lot more load and i need more time to recover um so it might only be a 10k session in total um but i wouldn't want to do 11k of it next week yeah absolutely and look i think whilst we're on the evidence there's a guy and we've referenced him in previous podcasts called tim gabbett who's one of the leading sports scientists around the world um, and we tend to work off a lot of his research which actually has been fantastic so if we're going to talk about what evidence is is out there and, and this is not specifically on the 10 percent rule but Tim's worked a lot over time with team sport and, and he found that if training loads increased from less than about 10% per 
per week to greater than 15% per week, then injury risk increased from around 7.5% risk at that that lower than 10% rate to up around the 21% rate if you were looking at loads greater than 15%. So that's a pretty significant increase in injury risk. So when it comes to talking about managing our loads in sport, we really have to bring some of Tim's work into the picture, don't we? Absolutely, yeah. And, and for our listeners, anyone that's uh, interested in this sort of stuff, uh, Tim's probably the world's leading sports scientist and his research is pretty much accepted as the gold standard around uh, this sort of topic. So uh, look up um, Tim Gabbett, that's G-A-B-B-E-T-T. Um, he's, he's pretty prolific in social media and has his own website. Uh, he's done some brilliant work over recent years uh, in making us much more aware um, about how important load and managing load is uh, in, in relation to injury risk. I think the paper that revolutionised the way we think was his one on the paradox between training and injury prevention. I know you've uh, read that paper in detail, so fill us in a bit about that. Yeah, look, that's, um, that's, that's one of my favourite papers of all time actually and I remember it coming out many years ago and 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 basically it was titled uh, the training injury prevention paradox why training harder is training smarter and it sort of put us all back in our seats in a way because I reflect back more on my footy uh, experience as a physio and we were finding um, for quite some time that all of these footballers were coming up to us at training and saying, I'm not training tonight and I've got this niggle and I'm a bit sore and I need to freshen up. And what was really interesting is that, that people were thinking that they were training smarter by being more careful and this actually led to them training a fair bit less and um, as Tim's work has shown in this paper that actually increased their injury risk and his take-home message from this paper um, which was part of the title was that athletes actually need to train smarter and harder and and it really changed the way that we thought about managing athletes and their loads. Yeah, um, certainly if we look at, at runners uh, along this line, uh, when when I was training many years ago, we were probably criticised for doing a lot of junk miles. And by junk miles, I mean uh, doing second runs where we'd, we'd just get another 8K in, so our, our weekly mileage would be up. And with uh, Tim's philosophies and research, we've probably become a lot more conditioned to uh, quality rather than quantity. So we'll train much more specific for our events, probably training harder more often, but overall less training. So that's where his uh, training smarter philosophy comes into play, um, but at the expense of uh, those those junk miles that uh, we we once did, and we've seen not only with injury prevention, but uh, there's been some good research that shows that this also produces better performances, as um, athletes aren't as fatigued and are training much more specifically for the event that they're uh, they're focusing on. Yeah, I reckon that's a good point, and and certainly that's you know when I talk about the footy side of things. That's definitely what we found is that people became so focused on trying to avoid injury that they were actually, in effect, 
increasing their injury risk. But um, just as importantly, even more importantly, it was actually at the expense of their performance levels as well. And, and Tim's work again has, has shown that, you know, if you can train harder and smarter, you, you, we maybe need to get away from just thinking of the injury prevention and, and get back to what we're all trying to do, which is get people performing at, at their best. And, and certainly training harder and smarter is going to result in, in better performance. But while we're on Tim Gabbard, and, and it fits in with the 10% rule topic in terms of you know how athletes do progress their loads like his basement floor ceiling concept of conditioning I find fantastic and I tend to use it a lot with my my athletes and patients how do you find this sort of stuff and do you use it at all yeah I use it a bit Uh, it's certainly a great analogy um, to use and explain uh, training load to to patients and, and athletes uh, so, and it, it gets back to what I was talking about before. If we can avoid uh, total training um, or periods of training where, where, or periods of time, sorry, where we do no training, um, then we're far less likely to, what he would say, uh, reach the basement, um, which is where you're totally deconditioned. And as we were talking about before, then it just takes so much longer to get back to where you want to be. So, in a nutshell, he's got his, his three levels of, of the basement um, where, where you're, you're starting from scratch. Um, the floor, which represents your, your current training load where you would like to be, and the ceiling is the desired um, maximal future capacity that you'll reach um, for the whatever event you're training for. Um, and the, the whole idea is to try and get that floor and ceiling as, as close to each other as possible. And that's where your elite athletes sit so that they only just have to top up their training to um, reach their, their peak physical condition. And if you can just avoid those periods of, of total rest and deconditioning where you... Um, can end up back in the basement and have to do a lot of work again to get back to where you were. Yeah, and look, I'll I'll add to that and 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 give my my footy two bobs worth as well, and say you know it's been interesting that you know footballers would go away at the end of a season, and uh, the general mentality was to take those few months to freshen up and and come back fresh and start again and we'll build your your training up from there but we know now and and everything in footy tends to start obviously at AFL level and and drift down is that footballers are sent uh, uh, sent away post-season with barely any break you know they're given programs to do to make sure that they don't get into that basement and whilst their floor won't be as high as it is during the season certainly the aim is for them to be going away and doing some form of training to try and keep them with some form of fitness so that that gap between the floor and the the ceiling as you say doesn't get um doesn't get so so much and if we look at it from a physio point of view um away from from sports and and consider injuries uh, for people who are listening uh, who may have been injured, you know, badly rolled their ankle or um, had a stress fracture in their foot. If you're uh, required to be in a, in a moon boot, in a walker for six weeks and can't do anything, um, then you, you consider the deconditioning that happens so you end up right back in the basement and then we've, that's where it becomes really uh, important how fast we progress you back 
into training um, to try and avoid getting what I call knock-on injuries. You know, people are, are recovering from one thing and they end up with another thing because they've just tried to do too much too soon. And, uh, you know, it's another example that even when you are wearing a boot or something, you can uh, always be doing some sort of training to try and prevent ending up in that basement. Yeah, look, that's why, look, I, I just think it's such a, a, a great, easy concept for people to understand. And, and in a nutshell, what we're trying to do is get people under whatever circumstance they're in at that time is to keep their floor as close to the ceiling as, as possible, which is going to reduce their, their injury risk during higher load times and, and really just means that, you know, the higher you can keep that floor, the more resilient your body has become to, to loads. And Yep, we certainly... Um found previously that when we thought we were training smarter by having rest periods between seasons, we were actually dropping our floors and creating more of a gap between the floor and ceiling um, and increasing our injury risk as a result. Time to take a short break and reflect back on our most recent podcast with ultra-endurance athlete John Van Weese. John's swimming and triathlon feats are incredible and in this episode he takes us through the gruelling arch-to-arc triathlon from London to France and details the incredible difficulty he had in each leg of the arch-to-arc. He also goes through the complexities of his English channel swims. He talks about the time he almost died and, and also the time he had to put on 23 kilograms in order to compete. So it's a really fantastic listen in its entirety, but here's a small snippet of what he had to say to me. I end up having a real tough window. So uh, I was on a big tide. I was on a big spring tide because uh, that was the only one free a year out when we booked it. And we ended up having a, we had high, high force winds because we were the back of a hurricane from America. So everyone that was booked to swim the channel that week cancelled. So no relay team went out, no solo swimmer went out. And I'd run 140k before. So I only got that window because the boatman trusted my swimming capability because I did double crossing with him in bad conditions. Yeah. And with the arch to arc, I was allowed to wear a wetsuit. So with English channel, you're not allowed to wear a wetsuit. With the arch to arc, you can wear a wetsuit. So the, so the boatman backed me to, to have a crack at the channel in those terrible conditions, you know, when it was wind against tide. Um, but then even during the run, I got lost going through London. So I ran an extra four or five K, you know, I'm thinking, oh, everything's conspiring against me. You know, I'm, I got lost. I've never run 140 K. Uh, everyone. So did that weigh on your mind mentally? Like when you. Yeah, it did for a while. So it's trying to get those things out of your head. Like so I'd never run 140k. Then I, I got lost going through London, so I had to run an extra four or five k. I'm running into um, an English Channel where every solo swimmer and relay team is cancelled. You know, so you start thinking, oh, geez, maybe it's not meant to be. But um, but I got through it, and um, it was a very tough experience. And yeah, I um, got through it and got the record, so I was, I was wrapped. If you want to catch up on episode 16 with John Van Weese, jump across to the Perform, Prevent, Recover page and you'll be able to download that episode and everything else we've done. But for now, let's get back to my chat with Rob O'Donnell on the 10% rule. All right, so why don't we uh, do a practical example and take me through the 10% rule in the following case, like I was just mentioning before, a runner who's got a stress fracture 
they we put them in a moon boot uh, for six weeks and then how you would progress them back using that sort of rule Rodio, well, you're putting me on the spot talking about runners, so I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what I do and you can come over the we'll top. We'll call them a footballer then. <laughs> right. So if we've had somebody that's uh, uh, in a moon boot for six weeks, they're coming off a pretty significant injury, obviously. Uh, for the average person, being in a moon boot means they're not going to do much at all. So we can pretty much say, look, their conditioning is going to be somewhere in the basement. So if we're going to look at 10%, then I'd say, well, you know, if they're doing nothing, 10% of nothing is nothing. Um, but really early on, you know, if they are day one out of a out of a moon boot, well, you might find 10% weight-bearing load might be too much. So, you know, very, very early on, it, 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 it could be too much. But pretty much what I think, look, in this example as a person comes out of a boot, let's say they're going to progress reasonably well, reasonably quickly. Um, and so I'd say that as they are progressing and this person's building a, a, a reasonable base is that whilst 10% is is probably safe, and I think that's part of the reason that we like it, it, it might actually be too slow. Um, and for example, like uh, like. Let's talk about somebody running, be it a runner or a footballer. If they're if they're running two k's, well, ten percent means they're only going to add two hundred meters to their distance, which, as I said, is probably pretty safe. But uh, it's going to drive them nuts. Um, you know, if they wanted to run ten k's, this person, it's going to take them almost twenty runs to get to ten kilometers. And look, I suppose too, when you think about it, we're we're talking about weekly loads. So that if if somebody is going to increase by 10% per week it's going to take them 20 weeks like that's that's five months so in this case 10% is going to be too slow so if the training load on these people is is too small it's probably going to delay the return of the athlete we're probably being too safe and we may actually be increasing their injury risk if they do have an injury uh, sorry a training spike somewhere along the way which is almost inevitable with these people as they get back so look to summarize your question if we've got somebody six weeks out of a moon boot i actually think 10 percent possibly in many cases is a little bit too conservative and we'll find that a lot of people will be pushing their loads a little bit quicker than that so yeah, I agree. It's it's certainly a, a horses for courses um, type of rule. Um, like I think about it, if we go to the other end of the spectrum, uh, with you know some of the elite distance runners who are running you know 150k upwards, we're probably not going to increase them from their 150 to 165 the ne- very next week. Um, so at at the very low end of the spectrum when people are in the basement and coming back we're probably going to increase them a little bit quicker than 10 percent um, and at the very top end where people are already training very hard and probably have their floor very close to their ceiling we're probably going to increase them a bit bit slower than 10 percent uh, so it's probably somewhere in the middle, uh, the middle range of people. They're training and they're trying to get fitter and building up for something where the, the 10% rule can, can work quite well. What do you think? I would agree with that. I think the person in between is the person where we're dealing with a lot is that you know they're going reasonably well and they're well on track and um, got their injuries under control and we're trying to push them along and 
again, 10%, I think, sometimes can be a little bit of a guide just to more or less bring us back to, you know, if they're at 2%, are we doing too little? Or if they're at 30%, are we doing too much? But it's 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 never exactly on 10%, I would say. And, uh, I mean, there's a lot of other factors too, isn't there? Yeah, and, and that's that's where the, be it the physio or the, the coach um, really earns their money uh, as trying to manipulate and work around that because, as you say, and we mentioned it before, it's only one variable that uh, the 10% rule is talking about as far as volume of training. Um, I, I mentioned intensity of training, but as, as you say, there's many other things, you know, personality traits, um, genetics, the amount of sleep they're getting, what sort of work they're doing. Our body just recognises load. It doesn't really know where that load, whether it's coming from training or the fact that they're on their feet for eight hours at work or you know they're really flat from having two nights um, of, of bad or poor sleep. Um, so you know then their body is going to react to that training load um, differently to uh, other circumstances. Yeah, look, and I, I think that's um, I think that's one of the the main drawbacks of the ten percent rule. As you said, it's it's one dimensional in many ways. And Tim Gabbett's uh, one of his favourite sayings is "treat the athlete, not the number." And I think we've got to keep that in mind. And as you said, look, it just doesn't account like ten percent alone doesn't account for all those other what we call internal loads. Um, and uh, you know, if you're just going to go on how far somebody runs, and you, you're really missing a lot of important information that you can gain from people. And and look, by that I mean we can take an example. Again, let's take it back to running. And if I take, uh, let's say, you and I going for a five-kilometer run, then you know the effects on both of us are going to be different, and how we progress both of us are going to be different. And I don't think either of us would ever say we'd both increase by ten percent at, at the same time, because you know you might be at the peak of your fitness, and and your floor is close to your ceiling, and and you might not need. 10% more load but you know if I'm coming back from injury and I'm a marathon runner and I need to put a lot more k's in the legs and we're probably going to increase me by more than 10% so again it's just uh, 10% is just a one-dimensional way to look at load increase so I, I think it's there in the in the examples you mentioned before but I, I think we've got to be careful about using it as a blanket rule you know one one rule can't be right for everybody yeah there's there's no doubt about it and and some of tim gabbett's other work uh, references this sort of thing with um acute um chronic workload which is one of our, our previous podcasts that people can go back to and have a listen but it it refers to exactly what you were just talking about whereas if we both did a 5k run and and did it together um, in say 25 minutes, you know, I might rate that as as a three out of ten effort, and you might rate it as a seven out of ten effort. Um, so, how I adapt and progress from that um, would be very different to you. So, you know, it's you, you've got to consider many things, and like all these things, it it shouldn't just be one rule fits all. It's it's a, a guide for us, and as I've also heard. Um, Tim Gabbard say it's it's not necessarily evidence-based practice but it's um, practice-based evidence in that many many people have used it over many years and and it's worked for them um, but it, it's not going to work for everyone and that actually makes me think um, 
of, and I'm sure your clients are a lot, um, I was going to say worse than mine, but they'll know what I mean in terms of tracking their data. I mean, I get people that can come in and tell me to the to the meter uh, what what volume they've done in a week of running. So I, I wonder sometimes whether we overanalyze load and whether we're not analyzing enough different load. But let let, let me ask you first: um, Do you track your own loads when you're running? I do these days, uh, and it, and it can be a problem. There's no doubt. There's a lot more. Um, measurables and gadgets out there you know Garmin I wear a Garmin and I I track it on Strava which is kind of the the Facebook for cyclists and runners Um, and it can be dangerous because we all look at these things and and it kind of forces you to continually be training harder than you maybe should be yeah yeah and do you find that um distance is what most of your people are measuring on their Garmin? Yeah, pretty much. I'd, I'd say distance is the, the number one thing people fall back to. But runners, a lot of this sort of information has is, is, um, dripped through to people. So they do look at uh, intensity and you know um, how fast they run on a particular day, that sort of thing, not just distance. Do you think we have become too devoted to the gadgets? Yeah, I think uh, it can be a good idea to throw away the watch at times, especially at the, the higher level. Um, if if uh, we relied less on our gadgets and looked at Strava and things less often, it, it might be doing us uh, some good. Yeah, and look at, you know, what it, it comes back to too, what we're saying with the 10% rule that, you know, no one rule fits all. But, you know, for me, I actually find trackers invaluable for my underactive people and you know wearing a a, a Fitbit even or even a pedometer and getting your average person who is only doing 3,000 steps a day to realize that and get up to four or five thousand I I think is uh, has a lot of fitness benefit Um, whereas people will use the trackers more at the other end you know when they're fit and active and trying to reach high levels but I, I actually reckon they can be brilliant for people at the lower levels. I absolutely agree. And and from a physio point of view, I think they can be fantastic because it just allows us, I know I do it many times, you know, someone will come in the room and uh, you'll ask them if they've got a Strava account and you can just see, you know, what training they've done and it really helps us to to manage their loads um, and adjust their, their, their training errors. Rightio, well, I'm not sure if we've answered the question, but... Uh do you want to give us your thoughts on the 10% rule, like your, your, your summary? Yeah, well, I think it's, it can be a great guide and it allows um, people to have something where they can control their increase in training load, but it's not the be-all and end-all. It, it really is, as I said before, horses for courses, um, and you should do it you know, think, thinking and talking with other people. The main thing I always say to runners is is listen to your body. Um, if you're pulling up sore from sessions or you've done several sessions in a row, um, you may be in for an easy day. That's not necessarily total rest. You just might change your activity. Um, and if avoidable, never completely stop. Yeah, look, I agree. You know, my... My final thoughts on it are, you know, also that 
10% rule will come in some cases, you know, for some athletes, but we've shown for some it's going to be too risky and, and increase their risk of injury. And for another population of people, it's actually going to be way too safe and too low and, and take them forever to get fit. So um, more what I like my people to think about is that Tim Gabbett basement floor ceiling and, and try and work out where your floor is related to your ceiling, I think is the... Is, is one of the most valuable things we can do. And, and as you said, try not to get in the basement. There's always something that you can be doing. And that's where we're here to help people. As you know, you might be in a moon boot, but we can certainly devise ways for people to keep their fitness levels up and, and stop that basement um, getting low. So you just, just need to find a way to not let yourself get into the basement. And look, I, I think if I was to you know summarise it at all, not that it's specifically the 10% rule, but... I think we come back if we train smarter and harder, uh, you're going to find that not only did your injury risk go down, but your ceiling goes up uh, anyway. So you're going to perform better by by training smarter and harder. And that's where I think we need to lead to. So um, thanks for joining us today. I hope it's given everyone um, an idea about where the 10% rule lies. And for those that are interested, look up your Tim Gabbett stuff and, and look at basement ceiling floor yeah excellent very good um and i'd I'd like to encourage people if uh you've got some questions please send them in this is always fun we're more than happy to take questions and answer questions in a a separate uh, podcast so give us some ideas on what topics you would like us to talk about and uh, we'll do our best to uh, answer all Well, that's it for episode 17 and covers off what has been a long-held belief that the 10% rule can be applied to your fitness and conditioning. As is often the case as we've been through, it just isn't as simple as it seems and there's definitely no one-size-fits-all philosophy for all athletes. So for now, that's it from us. We've got so many more great topics in the pipeline, so please don't forget to hit the follow button to ensure you get notified as soon as our next edition is released and send us any questions you've got.